Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. So we, we really value freedom. Uh, and, and it's depicted in so many ways in many of our movies that we love, uh, in society, it's spoken about on the radio, uh, etc. For example, um, I love the movie Braveheart. It's a bit violent, I know, <laughs> but I, I think most guys love, love Braveheart. But freedom is one of the key themes in the, in the movie of Braveheart. Who of you have seen the movie Braveheart? Oh, few of you, not, not that many. But it's a story of um, a Scottish uh, nobleman or from noble birth who goes to Europe. But Scotland is oppressed by the, the English king. Edward the Longshanks, they called him. Uh, and um, how they want freedom, how the Scots want freedom, and how they're willing to fight for that freedom. Um, but they, it's very complicated because there are all kinds of political negotiations, and, I mean, corruption is not a new thing, you know. So the, 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 the people at the bottom would suffer, but the people at the top would, would get English lands and titles and stuff, and then they'd sell out the, the subjects, you know, so that uh, they can become more rich and their families can become more rich. So they didn't really want to fight. The nobles didn't really want to fight. They just wanted to get richer. But the... Um, the poor peasants at the bottom, they were suffering and they wanted freedom. And um, so William Wallace comes and he decides he's going to stand up and he's going to fight for freedom. Uh, but the people are scared. They don't really want to fight. So he gives the speech at the beginning of the battle. And in those days, it was, I don't know when it was, 1400s or 1500s or whenever it was. long time ago, they still fought with spears and, you know, and horses and stuff. And... Um, he gives this speech, and he tells the guys, as they're standing there, you know, the Scots, they're outnumbered. There are many, there are many more, you know, uh, British soldiers, soldiers than, than Scots. Scots are standing there with their kilts, you know. And they, they're not armed very well. You know, most of them are farmers. And they're facing this big, organized British army. Uh, it's scary, you know. So they're standing there, and, and, and the British have horses. The Scots hardly, you know, anyone have horses. And the Brits have have, you know, bows and arrows and stuff, and, you know, the Scots have maybe one or two, but not... So, so they're completely outmatched. They're going to lose the battle, you know. Um, but now William Wallace is trying to sort of inspire them to fight, and he says to them, because the one guy shouts out, no, we'll run and we'll live, you know. If we fight, we die. If we run, we're going to live, you know. So we'll run and live, you know. And he says, yeah, fight and you might die. Run and you might live. But looking back, many years from now, would you be willing, in your old age, you know, after you've lived a life of oppression, with a lack of freedom, would you be willing to trade all the years between now and then for one chance, just one chance to come back here, to face your enemies and to say to them, you can take my life, but you cannot take my freedom. And like everyone's cheering, like, yeah, and all of a sudden the Scots are ready to fight, you know, because they're willing to fight for their freedom. They're willing to die for their freedom. And in the end of the movie, William Wallace gets caught and um, a very, you know, I'm a bit squeamish, so it's a very disturbing scene for me where he gets tortured in order to compel him and coerce him to pledge allegiance to the English king. And he just says, he's not my king. 
And in the end, they said, you know, just, just, just ask for mercy and, and, and we'll, we'll give you, we'll kill you. That's, you know, after they've tortured him for a while. And, and like everyone else in the crowd is already crying out, mercy, mercy, you know. And eventually, you know, sort of indicates he wants to say something. And everyone, you know, the, the, the executioner sort of says, shh, you know, he wants to, the prisoner wants to say something. And they think he's going to, you know, they're going to win and he's going to say mercy, you know, and they, they would have broken him, you know. And he sort of gets to get his last strength and he shouts, freedom! And then <laughs> in the end they kill him, you know, he dies. And then, but his death inspires the Scottish um, warriors to stand up and to fight for their freedom and to in, in the end win their freedom. And it's very inspiring, you know, freedom, you know. And even in South Africa, you know, freedom is a big thing to us. Because, I mean, if you think about the struggle against apartheid, what was it about? It was about freedom, right? It was a struggle for freedom, you know, a struggle for freedom from oppression and injustice. And, and here's the interesting thing. Not only freedom for the oppressed, but also freedom for the oppressor. Of course, when there's oppression, no one's free. Not the oppressed or the oppressor. And the struggle won freedom for us on so many different levels. Not enough. I mean, we still, I think the struggle for freedom is still going on because there's a lot uh, of senses in which we as a society are not yet free. Um, we are captured, if I can use that word. Um, but we want freedom, we need freedom, and we flourish under freedom. Even our Bill of Rights, if you think about it, some of the big issues addressed in our Bill of Rights are stuff like freedom of speech, freedom of association, and all kinds of other freedoms, freedom of religion, you know, freedom to be able to um, believe what we want to believe and associate with whom we want to associate with, and to be able to be free to speak our minds. Um, so freedom is a big issue. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes we define freedom in a way that actually undermines our freedom. Sometimes we define freedom in such a way that it actually robs us of the very freedom that we so deeply want and need to flourish in life. And we're going to look at James chapter 1, and in, in some sense, it actually deals with this. So I'm going to just read James 1 from verse 13 to 18. Not a long portion of Scripture. Just listen carefully to it. Um, and I'm going to discuss it um, just with this theme of freedom in mind. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. You can also translate that, Let no one say when he is tested or, or, or when, he, when he is under trial, uh, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot t- uh, be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured or or drawn away or dragged away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every uh, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So, what this passage uh, tells us, I just want to discuss it under three headings, deadly desires, um, deceptive light, and uh, a decisive gift. 
that God gives. So let's just look at this. James chapter 1 verse 13 to 15 focuses a lot on temptation. And it teaches us that if we define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whatever we desire, whenever we desire it, um, it will lead to ultimate loss of freedom. You see, so often we, we define freedom as freedom from. I'm only free if I'm free from all hindrances and all impediments that prevent me and block me from doing what I desire to do and what I want to do. So we, do, we, 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 we sort of define freedom in negative terms. Freedom is freedom from any impediment. But what James tells us is that definition of freedom actually leads to captivity. It actually undermines our freedom. It actually prevents us from being totally free. And um, he, he says basically that the thing that steals our freedom ultimately is not something on the outside. It's not something external. And he specifically mentions God. He says, when, you, when you're being tested, don't say God is tempting me. Don't, when you experience a test on the outside, circumstances that tempt you, because every test is a temptation and every temptation is a test, ultimately, right? That test you, don't say God is tempting me to sin or to evil. Because God cannot tempt anyone. And, and the interesting thing here is he, he, what James doesn't say is the problem. He doesn't say the problem is, you know, God putting me in difficult circumstances. He doesn't even say that the circumstances are the problem. In fact, he doesn't even say the devil is the problem. It's like... Those of you who remember a couple of years ago, Hansi Cronier, you know, when he took the money, you know, to, to um, you know, lose a game. He said in the, in the trial, the devil made me do it. <laughs> and what James says is, no, the devil didn't make you do it. You see, there's a difference, and, and you've got to listen here, this is, this is very important. There's a difference between the occasion of our sin and the cause of our sin. And what James says is, the occasion of your sin might be the circumstances, the test. But the cause of our sin is always our own desires. It's always our own desires. What we want. That's what causes us to sin. What we want. Our own internal desires is what tempt us. It's, it's not, it's the, the external stuff, the occasion, the, 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 the circumstances, the devil, the world... Um, the media, whatever it is, other people, those external stuff might be the occasion that we use to sin. But the thing that causes us to sin is our own desires. Because you can put two different people with different desires in the same circumstances, under the same tests and trials, and one will sin and the other will not. One will fall for it, the other will not. But notice also what he says here. Um, he, he basically uses um, a metaphor, and it's a, actually quite a sexual metaphor, uh, to show us the consequences of sin. So he says here, we sin, we fall for temptation, when number one, we are lured away or drawn away or dragged away and then enticed. And, and the, the picture here is of um, you know, you could, it can be used in two ways. One is of a fish that is sort of uh, hidden under a rock, and then it's sort of lured out, drawn out from under the rock by, by the, 
by the bait with the hook in it. Um, and then eventually it's enticed to go for the bait, to bite the bait. But then inside the bait is the hook, and the hook got, has got it. That's what the word seduced means. It, it's literally related to the word, the Greek word for bait. You take the bait. So he says, he gives us the process. He says, firstly what happens is, you sort of lured out because there's something that you desire. Something that you desire very much. You lured out and you see the bait and then you're enticed by it. You're drawn to it and you take a nibble. And then eventually after you take a nibble, you take a bite. And then you discover that there's a hook in it and it's got you. You're hooked. And then he says, and when desire has conceived... So, so he uses it in, in, in more sort of a relational. It's, it's, it's like a, um, say, a, a, a very alluring woman, you know. <laughs> like the, in Proverbs, Proverbs 5 to 9 especially, um, folly is presented like an alluring woman, a prostitute who sort of calls you out, who lures you out, who, who wants to seduce you. So lures you out of the safety of your house, lures you out of the safety of your family, and then eventually seduces you. First take a nibble, then you take a bite, and then you discover, but hang on, there's a hook in there. And then it says when desire has conceived. In other words, conception, conceiving, means that intimacy has taken place. So he's presenting it as an intimate, excuse me for being so graphic, but sexual relationship in which when that intimacy takes place, conception takes place. And then he says when that conception has taken place through the desire it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, so, you know, desire has a child called sin, but when sin is fully grown and of childbearing age itself, it gives birth to death. So there's a grandchild called death. <laughs> and death is the ultimate loss of freedom, right? When you're dead, you've lost all your freedom. So what he's saying is our own desires lead us to sin, Intimacy with the wrong things, leading to conception, leading to sin, eventually leading to death and the ultimate loss of our freedom. And the interesting thing here is the word used there for desire, because that clearly is the problem. The problem is those deadly desires that we have. It's a word, uh, Greek word epithumia. And it doesn't just mean uh, to want something. Um, you might recognize the... The pre uh, prefix ep epi, epithumia, the, the prefix epi, like uh, uh, um, an earthquake has an epicenter, right? That's where the, the power of the earthquake is at its strongest, where the, where the power of the earthquake is, is focused. So epithumia is not just desire, it's deep desire, or shall we call it over-desire for something. In other words, the problem is not just that we desire the wrong things. The problem is not just that we want the wrong things. Or let me put it differently. The problem is not just that we want bad things. The problem is that we want things so badly. So the problem is not just that we want bad things. Obviously, it's a, it's, it's, you know, if you want bad things, you know, you're going to get it. It's also going to lead to sin and death and, and, and loss of freedom. But the problem is also, it's more than that, it's when we want the right things too much. When we want even good things more than we want God. In other words, what, what James is basically saying there is that all sin ultimately is idolatry. What do you mean idolatry? All sin is idolatry in the sense that 
All sin is when we want something more than we want God. When we are more intimate with something than we are with God. All sin comes from that. All sin, in, in the words of Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says, you cannot break the other commandments unless you've broken the first two commandments. The first two commands, love the Lord your God above all else, and you shall not have any false God, any idols. He says, when you've broken any of the other commandments, it's because you've already broken the first two commandments, um, and you've already committed idolatry in your heart. You've already committed the idolatry in your heart. Why, for instance, would you commit adultery when God has commanded you not to commit adultery? Because that's one of the laws, right? You shall not commit adultery. Okay, adultery being um, having sex outside of marriage, having sex with someone that you're not married to. Why would you do that when, when the Bible clearly commands us not to do that? Well, the reason is very simple. Because you want that sex more than you want God. Because you love that sex more than you love God. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Freedom of the World, he says that we as human beings have freedom of choice. And ultimately, we always do, we always choose what we desire most. We always choose what we desire most. In other words, some of you might say, no, but hang on any, you know, you know, my boss told me to lie and to fudge the books. You know, to make them look better. And he threatened me that if I didn't do that, I'd lose my job. So I was, I, was, I was forced to lie. I didn't want to lie, but I was forced to lie. No, actually, you did want to lie. You wanted to keep your job more than you wanted to tell the truth. So ultimately, you did do what you wanted to do. You did what you wanted to do most. And that's why James says, we're without excuse. You can't blame anyone else. Ultimately, we always do what we want most. We always do what we desire most. And therefore, we, we're always responsible before God. So when we want bad things or when we want things too badly, that desire takes us captive. Uh, I've told this story once before, but I saw a, uh, a doc, it was a documentary. Um, it was many years ago. It's probably at least 20 years ago when I, when I saw the But, but it, it really stuck with me because it's such a powerful image. It was a story of a... Well, in the documentary, it was called The Bushman. I think nowadays that's not the politically correct term. I think a son, a uh, gentleman. So he had on his little, he lived in the Karoo, and he had on his little loin cloth and so on. And water is very scarce, desert, sort of arid area. They didn't know where the water was, but there were animals, so they knew, they knew there was water somewhere around, because otherwise the animals wouldn't survive. And the animals obviously knew where the water was, but these, these guys uh, didn't know where the water was. So this guy made a plan. And a very clever plan. So what he did was he went, he, he made sure a baboon was watching him. Because baboons are very sort of curious animals. So he made, made sure the baboon was watching him. So he went to a, um, one of those big ant heaps and he started digging a hole in it. And this baboon was like watching him like this and like, what on earth is he doing? You know, he's curious. But, but he sort of covered the hole that he was digging with his body. And then every now and again he sort of looked over his shoulder, make sure the baboon's watching him. And the baboon was sort of checking out what on earth is going on here. And he sort of dug a hole into the, into the um, anthill and sort of hollowed out a bit. And then he took something out of his pocket, which, I mean, the baboon didn't know what it was. It was actually just pumpkin seeds, you know, a handful of pumpkin seeds that he took out. 
And he sort of hid at the But he once again checked that the baboon was watching him. But he was very overtly and obviously, you know, secretive, trying to hide it. So the baboon would get more and more curious. So he took these pump and skids, put them into the hole that he had made. And the hole was just big enough for his hand and actually for the baboon's hand to go in. And then he, he sort of put the seeds in there. The baboon didn't know what he was putting in there. And then he sort of checked the baboon again to make sure the baboon was watching. And then he left. And, if, you know, eventually, initially the baboon was sort of, you know, curious but cautious. And, and that word, when it says we're drawn out by our desires, that's what it means. It means you're, you're, you're drawn out after initial caution and um, hesitance. And then he was lured, and then he, he just couldn't help himself. He was so curious. He wanted to know what on earth did this guy put in, the, in, in there. So the baboon stuck his hand in there and he started feeling around, and he got the seeds. He felt the seeds. Now, he didn't know what they were yet. He sort of felt them, and he grabbed them. But as soon as he made a fist, his hand was now too big to pull out of the hole. So his hand was stuck in. I mean, he had a, hand, a fist full of pumpkin seeds now so his, his hand was too big so he couldn't pull it out so now we're stuck and he was st- pulling pulling but he didn't want to let go and and this gentleman came this uh son trapper came and and just you know walked up to him took a, a a leather thong you know threw it around his neck tied it and tied him to a tree and he had him and this baboon wouldn't let go of the seeds and that's the thing that got him captive and that's the same thing that gets us captive when we grab hold of something and we won't let go. The devil used that same trick on me. And to make a long story short, what this, this uh, trapper guy did was he started feeding the baboon salt. For a whole day, he fed the baboon salt. Now, the salt tastes nice to the baboon. I mean, that's why they sort of groom each other as well and they eat the salt out of, um, you know, each other's, you know, um, fur and so on. So they liked the salt. So he loved the salt. And he was, you know, stuffing these crystals of salt into his mouth and munching. But then obviously after a couple of hours, he started getting really thirsty. But now he's tied to the tree. <laughs> so this guy left him for, for about a day, you know, and fed him some more salt, you know. And after a day, this baboon was so thirsty, it was about to die. So this guy untied, you know, the baboon, and the baboon didn't care who was watching. I, I mean, this watering hole that all the animals knew of was obviously a state secret, you know, and the animals would make sure that people weren't watching them when they went to the watering This baboon just didn't care anymore. He ran to the watering hole, and this guy had to run after him, you know, and he found the watering hole under underground river, and, and he had water for him and his, and his whole village. But the devil uses that same trick on us. And sometimes we're just like that baboon. We stick our hand into the ant heap, we grab the handful of pumpkin seeds, and we're stuck. Our hands too big. Can't come out. And we get taken captive by the things that we hold on to. They entice us. They seduce us. And we hold on to them. And then we're enticed and seduced into intimacy with them. And we conceive. And then when conception has taken place, it gives birth to sin. We do the wrong things. We disobey. We do things that we think we want, but actually don't lead to our flourishing. They actually lead ultimately to our death, because sin gives birth when it is full grown uh, to death. So all sin is idolatry. All sin is spiritual adultery, as it were. Um, you know, sometimes people will say, but, you know, just to reinforce that point, yeah, but, you know, I didn't really want to use drugs, but all my friends were doing it. No. <laughs> Actually, you wanted to be cool and in with your friends more than you wanted to not use drugs. So ultimately, you did do what you wanted to do most. 
And, and it's like that with all of us. It's our, our desires betray us and get us captive. So we can't blame anything except our own desire for our own loss of freedom, for our own sin and our own loss of freedom. So, but why, why does desire have such a power over us? Why does it? And this, this is my second point. Why does desire have such a power over us? And in verse 16 and 17, James tells us, let me just read that to you. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect uh, gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And here, James changes his metaphor. He used a sort of a sexual um, enticement metaphor uh, with you know, s- sexual intimacy and conception to describe what desire does what over-desire does in us. But now he moves to a celestial, you know, a, a cosmological metaphor. A metaphor of heavenly lights. The sun and the moon, specifically. And he says, don't be deceived. Now, how are we deceived? We're deceived into thinking that good, and, and literally what it says there, it says every good gift and perfect uh, gift, um, literally it says every good giving and every complete gift or perfect gift comes from above from the father of lights from god in other words so we're deceived so he's not only talking about good gifts that are good for us beneficial to us in other words but also gifts that are given in a good way good giving they complete gifts nothing is missing from them but they're also given in the right way because you see the the problem The problem with our desires is not our desires per se. It's not that we do have desires, because God, in a sense, created us with desires. I mean, even to refer back to the metaphor, the sexual metaphor that that, um, James uses, even our sexual desires are given by God. So sexual desire per se is not wrong. It's not sin per se. The problem is that our desires are misdirected. They are misdirected. They are directed at the wrong things. We desire the wrong things in the wrong way. And what James is saying that every perfect gift, complete gift that lacks nothing, and every gift that is given in in a good way comes from above, from God. In other words, everything that we need that is good for us and that will complete our lives, comes from above, from God. And we're deceived into thinking we can find it in other places. We, des- we have the right desire, but we direct that desire. Instead of it directing it at God as the only one who can fulfill it, we direct it at all kinds of other things on earth. And we have an over-desire for the things on earth. We desire them more than we desire God. And then they take us captive and they lead to death. Now, um, there's a well-known um, guy called C.S. Lewis. Let me just see. I think I actually have that quote. There we go, up on the screen. So um, you can just follow with me and um, read it. Because this comes from a, a sermon he preached called The Weight of Glory. And he, he just says it so beautifully, um, how, how we get confused and misdirect our desires and, and look for the fulfillment of legitimate desires in, in the wrong places. So he says the following. 
We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. I think I begin to see what it means. In one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift uh, on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do you want? Ah, but we do want much more. We do, want, uh, we d- do not want merely to see beauty, though. God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may... uh, surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may very near, uh, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world looking in. The wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but we do not make, uh, but, it, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see and desire. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with a rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then we will put on its glory, or rather, that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. For you must not think that I am putting forward a heathen fancy of being absorbed into nature. Nature is mortal. We shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebulae have passed away, each one of you will still be alive. Think about that. Nature is only the image, the symbol. But it is the symbol scripture invites us to use. We are summoned to pass in through nature, beyond her, into that splendor which she fitfully reflects. In other words, that desire that we have when we see something beautiful, when we see someone beautiful, when we experience something pleasurable, what Lewis is saying is all those desires are just a pale reflection of the ultimate fulfillment that we can find not in nature. Nature only gives us a reflection. The love between a husband and a wife is only a reflection. And if we have an over-desire for it and we make that the end instead of just a means to, to point us to another love, not only will we be disappointed, but we will destroy that relationship because we'll expect something of it that it can never give. No matter how much you love your husband and your wife, there is something that they cannot give you. And if you expect them to give you what only God can give you, you will be so disappointed that you'll, you'll crush them with your expectation. It'll destroy. It'll lead to death. So, that's what James is saying here. He says, the father of light 
who obviously said, let there be light, and there was light, and then created the sun, moon, and the stars. He's the father of light. And, and he uses the word father because he's going to talk about birth again in the next verse. It says, the father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change or shadow of turning. The light that doesn't have a shadow of turning is the sun. The light, heavenly light, which does have a shadow of turning is the moon. What's the difference between the sun and the moon? What's the difference between the sun and the moon? Yes. The moon only reflects the light of the sun. The moon is not a source of light. It's only a reflector of light. And what, God, what James is saying is God is like the sun. He doesn't have a light side and a dark side. He doesn't have a shadow of turning. He's not like the moon. The moon is a big ball of dirt that reflects light. Okay. Likewise, we as human beings are made out of the dirt of the earth to reflect God's light. So he's saying God is like the sun. He's the source of light. Every other light is just a reflection. And he's saying, don't go to the moon for your light. Because everything else in creation is just a moon. Your spouse is just a moon. Your job is just a moon. Your friends are just moons. Everything else that you enjoy is just a moon. It's just a reflection. And if you go to the reflection only, you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed. He says, go directly to the source of light. Go to the sun. And he says, the sun is the father of lights. God. He. And, and that's why I talk about deceptive light. Reflected light is deceptive light because it gives you light. It gives you a foretaste of something that it cannot ultimately fulfill. Something that will ultimately always leave you unsatisfied, unfulfilled. Disappointed if you get stuck only there. The reflected light, the moon, is supposed to point you back to the light which it reflects, which is the sun. Everything else, every good thing in this life, every desire that we have for fulfillment in this life, is supposed to point us to the source of all the fulfillment, the source of all the light, which is God, the Father of lights. And only in Him will we find fulfillment so, our desire isn't illegitimate, it's just misdirected. We try to get from other things which on, that which only God can give us. And the moons in our life, in a sense, deceive us. So, what's the solution to that? The interesting thing is, where the problem is birth, desire, over-desire, giving birth to sin, which gives birth to death. So, the problem is birth. You know what James says? The solution is also birth. He says God has chosen, by his own will, God has chosen to give us birth from above. That, when he talks about every good gift and every perfect giving, or every, every good giving and every perfect gift, he says the ultimate example of that is a birth from above, which comes from God. Whereas we choose, through our over-desires, and it leads to death. When God chooses for us, He chooses better, and it leads to life. So freedom from hindrances um, is not true freedom. Uh, we're only truly free when we're free to fulfill what we were created for. Uh, let me just read that verse 18 again. It says, of, our own, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation, of His creatures. <clears throat> 
Now, why does he talk about creation here? Because he talks about the Father of lights, which refers to creation, you know, of God saying, let there be light and creating the sun, moon, and stars. And now he talks about the first fruits of his creatures, of his creation. Why is he referring to, to creation? Because he's trying to show us that freedom is not so much freedom from hindrances in order to do what we want, desire, when we desire it, but freedom to do what we were created to do. You're only truly free when you are free to do what you were created to do. Now, now listen to this. Don't, this is actually very powerful and very profound if you get it. Is a fish free when it's outside of the water? No. It's dead, right? <laughs> it's not free, it's dead. It dies. In other words, when a fish isn't in the environment it was created for, it's not free. It dies. And so often we say, oh, but that's so limiting. You know, why must I as a fish limit myself to water? Who says I want what I want to choose for myself when I want to be in the water or not? Well, good luck with that. <laughs> You see, our over-desires for things that we were not created for lead us to sin and death. Our definition of freedom as, don't tell me that I must be in the water. I will choose whether I want to be in the water or not. I, I'm free. That definition of freedom leads to the loss of freedom. The ultimate loss of freedom. It leads to death. Or let's take a glider. You know, some guys like, you know, these glider stuff, you know, and like an aeroplane without an engine, and it sort of glides on the, on the wind streams and so on. Now, obviously, I, I presume a glider has good sort of aerodynamics, but it's also probably quite light. I mean, I haven't gone and, you know, weighed one, but I'm sure it's lighter than an aeroplane, you know. It's, it hasn't got an engine, and the idea is that it's light enough to float. So you might say, okay, well, a gliders are nice and light, so they will probably float. So I'll, I'll put mine on, on the river and see whether it floats. Guess what happens when you do that? It sinks. Why? Because it's not what it was created for. Gliders were created to glide in the air, not float on the water. Same as the fish. Okay? So, true freedom is when we are free uh, in the, to do what we are, were created to do. And, and now the choice that God places us before is, are we going to continue to be victims of our choices, of our desires, or are we going to be beneficiaries of God's choice and God's desire for us? Do you want to continue to be a victim of your own desires? Or do you want to be a beneficiary of God's desires for you? Either we're born from above, or sin is born from within. But how does this happen? It gives us a clue. It says, but the word of truth, the word for word there, the Greek word is logos, the logos of truth, the word of truth. And in other scriptures, um, maybe I can just read one or so for you. Ephesians 1 verse 13, um, it says, in him, also you, uh, we, uh, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is the word of truth? It's the gospel of our salvation. That's the word of truth. It's the good news 
The good news of what? The good news that even though all of us, every single one of us, I mean, and, and James says this in, in James chapter 4, he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is, is enmity with God? He says, we're all adulterers and adulteresses. Spiritually speaking, we've gone after other lovers. We've been enticed by other lovers. There's been, metaphorically speaking, sexual intimacy with those false gods, those idols, which has led to the conception of sin, the birth of sin, and the birth of death in our lives. We are all like husbands or wives that have been unfaithful to, our, to God, our ultimate spouse. And what is the good news? The word of truth? The good news is that even though we're guilty, God is willing to give us another chance. Even though we've committed spiritual adultery and gone after other idols and tried to get from other places what only God can give us, God says, I'll give you another chance. I'm willing to marry you again. I'm willing to take you back again. I'm willing to forgive you. Why? Because Jesus, the Logos, the word of truth, came. And the punishment we deserved for our sins, he took in our place on the cross. God, as it were, became flesh. Uh, and this is, this is the amazing thing to me, that we were the ones that broke the relationship with God because of our over-desires. And yet God takes the initiative, and Jesus is willing to come from His high place in heaven, all the comfort, all the glory, all the splendor, lay all of that down, come to earth, come and suffer for 30 years in our midst, come and be a servant, and then die the most humiliating, you're hung naked on the cross, humiliating and painful death known to man on the cross. Why? So that He can woo us back. He can woo us back. We were unfaithful, not only did we not run back to him, but he came running to after us to get us back again. To woo us back and to say, I still love you. I still want you. I still want to save you. See, the, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, the word gospel means good news. And like I always say, the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's it's not good advice about what we must do to be saved. It's good news about what Jesus has done to save us. What has He done to save us? He has come to search for us, to seek and to save the lost. In that place where we have sold ourselves as slaves to sin, where we've been enslaved by sin and where we're about to die under sin, He comes and mounts a rescue operation and saves us from that spiritual brothel. And saves us for himself. And says, come, marry me again. Be mine again. I still want you. I still choose you. And in order to do that, he allows us to experience a new birth. A birth from above. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we serve. You see, we get ourselves caught like that baboon by the things that we hold on to. Jesus gives us a new birth. A new heart. Heart of flesh for a heart of stone. New desires. So that we actually want what He wants. So that we can let go of those captivating pumpkin seeds <laughs> that keep us captive. Useless stuff in the light of eternity. I love that little analogy of the string. Stuff that mean nothing in eternity. Pumpkin seeds. Nonsense. 
that we hold on to. What are you holding on to? What are you unable to let go of? Because what you, have unable to let, what you are unable to let go of has taken you captive. Whatever you want more than you want God, that thing you are a slave to. That thing has taken you captive. Do you want freedom? There's only one place you will get it from. You'll get it from God. And when you get Him, when you get Jesus, the ultimate husband, if I can put it that way, you'll find that all your desires are ultimately fulfilled in Him. In a way that's not disappointing. In a way that ultimately really fulfills. And you look back one day in eternity when you get to the rest of that string, you know, not just the short little lifetime, but the rest of the string. You look back from eternity and you'll say, thank God I chose the sun and not just the moon. Thank God I chose the source of light and not just the reflection of the light. Thank God I let go of all my other lovers whom I committed adultery with and I allowed Jesus to grab hold of me. And to love me the way I needed to be loved. Thank God. It's so much better. So much better. Amen. You see that we all have desires. Over desires that keep us captive. And the way to deal with a desire is not to try and fight it. The way to deal with a desire is not to try and fight it. But to try and replace it with an even stronger desire. And Jesus says, when... God gives new birth to us. He gives us new desires, stronger desires, better desires that overcome those sinful over-desires. He gives us a desire for Him. The only way that you'll be free from your deadly desires is if you desire God more than you desire sin. So just close your eyes for a moment. All of us start off being captive to sin. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free from your sin? Do you want to be free from captivity? Do you want to be liberated? There's only one who can do it for you. And his name is Jesus, the word of truth. He's the only one who can liberate you. And he liberates you by making you desire him more than anything else. And there, there are many of you, as I was speaking Maybe you realizing, I'm, I'm captive, I'm taken captive by some form of sin. It might be by drugs. It might be with, through relationship. Because I want that husband or that wife, that girlfriend or that boyfriend more than I want God. It might be whatever, my work that's, that's keeping me captive. Because I, I, I want to do well in work. I want success. I want riches more than anything else, more than God. And, and, and that... that that work has taken me captive. It's not that that work is a bad thing, but because I want it so much, it's taken me captive and it's busy killing me. The stress, the, the workerism is busy killing me. I'm not free. And maybe you're realizing that this morning. So as, as your eyes are closed and you're focusing on God, I just want to ask you, if you realize that you need that new birth, that birth from above, you need that change of heart that will cause you to want God, to want Jesus, the word of life, more than you want other things. Then I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Jesus is through me calling out to you, saying, I want to set you free. I want to make you mine. I want to be in covenant with you. 
I want to love you the way you need to be loved. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.com. Thank you.